All right, so welcome back. We got another GGTMC at TIFF here. This time we're going to be talking about one of our most anticipated films of the festival. I can say that comfortably, I believe. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, his film Valhalla Rising, which we went into thinking was going to be the ultimate Viking craziness and came out of it with a total feeling, different feeling altogether. <laughs> so, yes. so I'll, uh, I'll give you a basic plot synopsis here. Uh, mm, Let's just say that for uh, for years, the uh, Butte warrior known as One Eye has been held prisoner by a Norse chieftain. Basically, chieftain. used yeah, chieftain, chieftain, chieftain. Uh, yes, there we go. And I won't uh, read the whole plot there because. Uh, but let's just say that you, you know what? There's no plot that can even describe this movie, in my opinion. So, let's just say that there's a character we follow, played by Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, Mikkelsen, my bad, Mikkelsen. Mikkelsen. There we go. <laughs> uh, character called One Eye. Uh, there's a joke there about the one eye, but we can't really. It was a personal joke, so we can't really talk about it. It was sort of uh, involving our whole programming for the festival. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, basically, you know, some uh, clans using for a fighting tool, kind of a betting fighting tool, and then some different things happen. It involves Christianity and some other things. So it's really almost impossible to explain this plot, and I think you'll understand why once we start talking about the movie. So I'll kick it over to you, and we'll get going on this thing. Okay, interestingly, Nicholas Winding Refn takes the lead in terms of coverage on the GGTMC. We've done five films by Refn. We've done a Danish gangster trilogy. We've done a sort of uh, essay on violence in the penal system in Britain. And now a Viking movie that takes place in 1000 AD that is uh, minimal, uh, to say the least. Yeah, he's definitely one of my five favorite directors working right now. Yes, very, very interesting, very talented. Uh, The film opens up with a very... I can't really even verbalize it. It just, the credit sequence exudes confidence. Just the, the font he uses, the big letters. You and I looked at each other and went, yeah, like, oh, you know, reffing. So, so Kubrick in the beginning. <laughs> so Kubrick. And it just, it's just, he's got nuts and he knows he's good at what he does. And yeah. it just, for people like us, it's it's amazing to see him sort of, you know, open with that sort of credits. And you have to see it to know what we're talking about. Um, Immediately, uh, as is going to be the case with this film and with anything Refn does, everything's going to be on point. And we get some incredible sound design. We get a lot of wind. The wind just, you know, throughout the film almost, there's always that wind, you know, a little bit louder, a little bit quieter, but it's always there. Um, And we get that. I mean, even things much like the punches, it feels like a watermelon hitting the concrete whenever someone gets (laughs) punched. (laughs) Um, Sort of rope twisting and turning, just that noise that rope... uh, can make yeah the pun- uh, the punches are violent and wet <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely this is just they they filmed in uh, the highlands of scotland i think it was yes, and yes uh it just rained and rained and it's gray and it's just you know just a tough tough shoot they said it looks cold and damp and just an unforgiving time with unforgiving men um there's no women in the film i mean this is sort of like carpenter's the thing there's no women there's not even a, a voiceover by a woman no there's no woman character there are women in the film but there's no woman characters to uh, speak of there's women in the background piled in a naked heap yes <laughs> alive I, I still still think that's one of the greatest images i saw at the whole festival <laughs> just bizarre just like all these naked women chained together <laughs> yeah no definitely um visually this is a very it's a very bleached out film very extreme um uh, not topography, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the landscape is very extreme and again, harsh and unforgiving, much like this time. And again, much like the characters, it just, it's not, you know, San Diego, <laughs> very clearly. No, no it's, it's definitely not that. Saw no, saw no palm trees in the back of the postcard that one I sent me. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it feels almost like German expressionist work and how sort of extreme it is and how it's very dark within harsh white lighting in spots with some of the Oh, yeah, you know, it's very, well. very expressionistic. The whole film is that way. It's very uh, Fritz Lang feeling, a very... Oh, I can't even think of the way to describe it. But yes, I mean, everything is very harsh. Everything, you know, it's really actors in a rough element. You can tell. And Mickelson said himself at the Q&A afterwards that, you know, they were an hour away from anything. And it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. There's nothing where they were. I mean, this is like they shot it where the same places they shot Braveheart, except they went that much further into the Highlands. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. He had said they had to walk. One hour yes. each way yes, because so, they couldn't get vehicles in. Yeah, so if anything place. happened, if anybody got hurt or anything, it was a major deal because they had to go all the way back. And they shot it with like the, the red camera, the $30,000 red camera that you can get. And, and uh, wow, I can't believe they shot this with a digital camera. It looks fucking amazing. It does look amazing. Uh, you know, we get really an otherworldly feel with, again, with the land and terrain. It just feels like nothing we know or have seen before. Mm-hmm. As much as we have sort of a notion in our mind's eye of the highlands it just feels like a completely different time, place, and world, which clearly was what Refn was going for. Yes. Um, I, I have a note here. It says brain stew. Was that what they fed him? Was it brain stew? Did we establish <laughs> that, or am I just hypothesizing here? <laughs> I don't even remember, but uh, yeah, I think it was brain stew or something, because whatever he was eating while he was in the cage was disgusting. It looked like uh, a couple pieces of chicken and a bowl somebody pissed in. That's what it looked like. Yeah, and pureed or something. Oh, God, it looked awful, and he, he would just drink it. He would just drink it and throw the bowl. Um, and even the sound when he threw the bowl sounded good. Sort of the clatter of the bowl on the, the yeah, rock. Those big wooden bowls. Yes. Um, again, we had mentioned this in the Saul McCain review, the bone crunching. with, And I like this. It's bone crunching from blunt objects because it's not like there was these really sharp swords. And this. I mean, it's just blunt trauma, just rocks and fists and elbows, just everything just crunching of bones. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, the score in this film, I think, is is one of the best scores I've heard in a while. Very memorable, very unconventional, though. It almost and this is maybe going to sound silly, but if you see this film, you'll know what I mean. It almost sounds to me like prehistoric alien dinosaurs groaning. <laughs> wow! In spots, yeah. just a really odd score but really great and then there's moments of the score that feel so much like a John Carpenter synthy score yeah. and there's moments where it's like this sort of guitar kind of rock type feel when they're it's climbing almost, yeah, up the mountain it's almost like a uh, kind of a Nordic metal type of uh, heavy metal type they're coming up the hill it's almost like a very heavy you know this heavy paced kind of not not like speed metal or death metal but this very heavy metal type thing you know what I'm saying it's hard driving rock yes you know, but just be- between sort of the prehistoric alien dinosaurs and the carpenter synth and this Nordic rock, it just, it's an awesome fucking score. I would actually buy this score. I would love to listen to it again and see what sort of images I can conjure up because I think as strong visually as Refn is, his score does a hell of a job of, of adding what a score should, which is it evokes sort of the mood and the, the sentiment of the of these men and, and of the setting. It just does a wonderful job of that. Yes. There's actually scenes in here that reminded me of ghost of Mars of all, of all odd things. Yeah. Hey, like I said, I think ghost of Mars is uh, not the, the turd that everyone thinks it is. And you had a run of films that didn't feel like carpenter films, but that film felt like a carpenter film sure did. to me. Um, we get a, a great moment where it's, it's a shootout. It's almost like a Western style shootout. Um, you can see sort of the cameras positioned at uh, one of the, I don't even know if Mads is sort of the protagonist so much as just 
the central character, but um, <laughs> I will say for, for, I guess, lack of a better description, the bad guy, you can see it's shot from his hip and he's got a hatchet instead of a gun. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, just it's very nice to see that as opposed to seeing the pistol ready to come out. This guy's itching to get his hatchet and throw it into someone's sternum. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, as we are known to love here, we get a lot of awesome beardage in this film. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is this is a Nordic, uh, some more Nordic love here. There's a uh, facial hair abounds here. I mean, it's all over the place. Oddly enough, though, uh, Mickelson's character doesn't really have much facial hair. No, but, I uh, guess him being in a cage all the time, he shaves with a blunt rock or something. There's a lot of good facial hair. Uh, some of it's very real, real uh, realized very well. Like some of it's kind of ratty and kind of overgrown, like it would be if they were on that boat. As long as they were on that boat, mm-hmm. but uh, some of it's also very. Uh, I think some mistakes are made. Some of it's a little too well trimmed and groomed. Uh, yes, that, that's just that's just a personal caveat. I mean, it's not it's not doesn't make any difference. But some of it's pretty well groomed for as and you know what I'm talking about for as long as they were on the boat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's all yes. I'll say. <laughs> Um, there are actually some, there's some really sort of a few comedic moments in this because, uh, one eyes character, when he's traveling around or uh, he liberates himself, I don't think that's giving anything away. He has this young boy with him and the boy almost acts as a vessel or a translator for, for Mickelson. And, um, they, they come across the, again, these, uh, guys on the crusades, the Christian crusades, and they're asking, uh, Mickelson who doesn't, who does, has no lines in the film. He does not speak one word. Mm-hmm. Um, you need a name, or the boy says to him, they says, what's your name? And the boy says, his name's One Eye. And you can see once the, the guy, the Christians kind of walk away, M- uh, Mickelson gives him a bit of a, a glance and he says, what? You needed a name and you only have one eye. Yeah, yeah. Just a, sort of a funny sort of comedic uh, moment. Um, we'd mentioned Carpenter in this film in terms of a score. And uh, there's a Carpenter film that employs a lot of fog and that is, of course, The Fog. This film also employs a lot of fog. A lot of fog. And I have a feeling most of this fog is real. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is Scottish Highland fog. This is real fog, I think. Because <laughs> they were I mean, way up there, man. You can tell. They're sitting on the side of mountains, basically. Oh, I mean, the <laughs> fog is just, it's very dark and foreboding. And I think I think I know, saw I think I saw Quint, or maybe Wilson running around up there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again, the wind, always coming back to the wind and just how unforgiving this uh, land is. I only have a few more notes here. Um, there's a great reveal of some uh, indigenous people. Not a reveal so much. Uh, there's some indigenous people in this film and just a wonderful look at them in a different uh, time and place. And I was accustomed to seeing them um, visually. Again, it was very stunning to see. Um you know, there's something always disturbs me about that full body paint uh, look that comes out of like the cannibal films and whatnot. Mm. Something always disturbs me about that. And maybe maybe it's my memory of the cannibal films. <laughs> but uh, either way, I, I just I'm terribly disturbed by a bunch of dudes running around, hardly no clothes on. They have one color paint on. Yeah, it's very disturbing to me. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, other than that, I don't really have a lot of notes. We get a lot of sort of ref in which he does a lot of fading uh, to black and coming back in and stuff, which, you know, again, he's a strong enough director that I don't think it's it's a weakness mm-hmm. or inability to edit his film properly. Um, and those are all the notes I have. Like I said, it's a very minimal film, and I know you had a lot of notes, so I'll kick it over to you. I think that the best way to describe this film for me is that it's very comparable to Bronson. It's just like a different time zone. It's like I, t- I think I told you that Reffin's evidently going through some experimentation as far as being a filmmaker goes. 
Mm-hmm. This one feels a lot like Bronson felt. Uh, Bronson was a little bit more comedic and uh, and different in tone in some spots. And, of course, Bronson is the true narrator of that film. Uh, uh, Bronson, the character itself, is the true narrator of that film. Whereas this film, there's no narration. It's all just kind of given to you and you interpret it. But it's it still has, even though that, it still has the same tone and the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, comment on violence and whatnot. Uh, I mean... Reffin himself came out and said that he wanted to do a, a movie about a character that was an enigma. And uh, once he said that, I kind of understood the movie more. And I think if he wouldn't have said that, I think I would have had a hard time. I think I would have been a little bit more frustrated with the movie. But since he said that, I understood what he. I think I understood what he was going for. And that you know, one eye is a force of nature. He's never explained. He's just he's there. He's like uh, he's like cancer or. Um, uh, like the Grim Reaper, you know, in uh, in the old stories or what we believe to be the Grim Reaper, you know. I mean, he's there to end lives, you know. He's not there to to uh, to cause any kind of happiness. He's there to take things away. And I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. That And it's really an amazing performance from Mickelson. I mean, easily one of my favorite performances we saw is this one. I mean, it's right up there with the lead in Airdal. I mean, this is a fucking amazing performance. The guy never says a fucking word, and he only has one eye to, to give you any emotion. Mm-hmm. And he still manages to give you emotion without showing any emotion. And I mean, Raffin allows him to give emotion without yes. him showing any emotion. I mean, he's a fucking machine. I mean, there's a scene where they're all kind of sitting in a field, and he gets up and he just takes care of some business. And it's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and and Mickelson's actually a pretty big guy. We saw him there, and he's actually a lot bigger than I thought he was. And, you know, from seeing the movies, he looked like he'd be kind of like a smaller kind of. Uh, this is not an insult, I hope, but kind of a smaller, kind of weaselly guy. I guess I'm going with his Tunny character, you know, because he's a bit of a weasel. I, I think that we pictured him to look more like James Purefoy did. Yes, yes, exactly. There you go. Purefoy was kind of a more of an average-sized gentleman, whereas Mickelson was easily, uh, I'd say, what, 6'2", 6'3", maybe? He's, yeah, he looked about 6'2", 6'3", and probably about 220, 225. He was a good, he was a sturdy lad. Yeah, he was a big guy, and when he came out on the stage, I was like, whoa, I didn't expect Mickelson to be that big. <laughs> So and Reffin's a big gentleman as well, but I mean, this is definitely as Mickelson said, he didn't really have a choice. He just wanted to work with Nicholas Wine and Reffing again, and and they wanted to make this movie. Reffin wanted to make this movie, and he just went and did it. And uh, that these two work together and they work together so well, I think is really outstanding. That they have this trust with each other that they can make this movie with a character with no dialogue whatsoever. And it's it's a film of interpretation. This is not a simple narrative. Uh, it seems like a simple narrative, but it's not, in my opinion. I think it's very complicated. It's it's all about interpretation of the character and on uh, interpretation of violence and maybe a little bit of interpretation of religion because these Christians, they see him as uh, the devil. At, at one point, they start to call him the devil, right? And then they see him as a prophet and they see him as a number of – he's a number of things to a number of people. Yes, he's an enigma. He, he, he doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways, but because people are in such dire situations, they look to him for answers. And he gives it to them, be it death be it uh, climbing a mountain, <laughs> be it uh, you know sacrifice, whatever it be, uh, he gives it to them in some capacity, almost like a Christ-like figure in a way. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, the difference between this and something like the ape that we talked about is this is, uh, is, is very cryptic and, and minimal, but it works. Yes, totally, totally works. And that's why I, I got one of my notes here is that this one's very slow-paced and patient. But you can tell the reference has an assured hand. I mean, he knows what he's going for. Here he doesn't, uh, you know. There's nothing in this film I felt that was uh, was uh, a waste of time. The whole film is slow paced and everything fits in. There's some scenes 
where you get the feeling that maybe one eye is a bit of a prophet to himself, that he can see things happening before they do, which I thought were kind of odd choices. And the scene will all the the the, the film will all of a sudden go to blood red. Which yeah, is, it's just everything. It's just blood red. Yeah, and it's pretty freaky too because the sound design, and everything, it kind of smacks you across the face. And uh, I was like, okay, so he's a bit of a prophet and everything. And it, it's just a really, it's a really weird feel. And you can tell the reference using all of his influences. You get your Western movie influences with the landscapes, the way it's shot. You got your Carpenter influence with music and the way it's kind of, you know, well, we got, you know, you got a character named One Eye. You know, Snake Plissken might only have one eye. So, mm-hmm. but it is very Carpenter esque in some ways. Uh, it's a film, you know, with all guys in it, except for that one scene with the nude women. It's all guys. So, you know, that's very Carpenter esque. You know, he likes his buddy movies and whatnot. And, it seems, uh, it seems that I, I I I get the interpretation that it's basically a journey from what was once heaven for people in this world where you know they had this fighter and everything and whatnot and to, and it's a basically a journey like apocalypse now into madness into uh, that's what it reminded me of a little bit in hindsight when we talk about it, the boat ride and all the mm-hmm. stuff I can see a little bit of apocalypse now in it I don't know if you could see it but. Yeah, absolutely. That's a spot on. It's a bit of a descent into madness, you know. And I think, I think, I think, I think it works though. I think, I think this one works better than Bronson works. That's that's what my opinion is. I mean, I like Bronson, but I think this one works a little bit better than Bronson as far as his what he's what he's commenting on, what he's trying to do. But here's what I will say: this movie is not a Viking action movie. <laughs> Be warned. No. Very <laughs> slow paced. Very patient. This is nowhere near a Viking action movie. That's what you're going to think it is from the trailers and, and everything you see. It has some action in it, and it has some great scenes of violence and whatnot, but this is the, about as far, the far removed from an action movie as you'll ever see. This is the exact opposite of an action movie, I would say. It certainly was. The exact opposite of Solomon Kane. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But it is a beautiful film, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's a great film that's open to interpretation by anybody. And, uh, you know, when we first walked out of it, I think we were kind of confused by it a little bit. And this won't get a release. It says here that it'll get a release in uh, January of 2010 in Finland. Uh, whatever. That's uh, that's weird. But I don't know when. It, I don't think it'll ever get a release here. I think it'll be a DVD release, kind of like Bronson was. But uh, I think it's, uh, you know, when we walked out, we were kind of confused by it a little bit. But I think this is one that's grown on me. This is uh, like Bronson. This has grown on me. And reference films tend to do that. Uh, I tend to. Watch his films and 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 I like them. Don't love them at first, but then as the further I get removed from them, I start to love them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. All of us were kind of a little bit scratching our head. We had faith that we had to work some things through, and then we would get where Reffin intended us to be. But it was going to take a little bit of work, and it did, and we got there. Yes, yes. Unlike uh, the Ape, where we, you know, we had to do some work and stuff, and we just left frustrated. This one, we left confused, but I think eventually have figured out what we what we pulled out of it. And I don't want to give too much away because I think, it, I think it, this is definitely worth a watch. Uh, I think it's going to confound some and frustrate some, but I think it's also going to make some people very, uh, very happy because it's a very enlightening movie. And weirdly enough for what it is, I'll just say this since we saw it, I can't really talk about the back end of it. And weirdly enough, it's actually a bit of an optimistic film. And we, we yeah. had, we had this experience to, in a, two in a row because we saw enter the void before this. And, uh, you could come out of it with any way you want to come out of it with, but, uh, or you know any feelings you want to come out of it with, you can come out there. But uh, I think ultimately it's a bit of a optimistic, optimistic film. But it's, a, it's I'm going to warn people it's an experimental film. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's again you have to be a patient viewer, and it's going to be a bit confounding and 
Very minimal. Yeah, don't go in expecting this, you know, pacey, bloody sort of, uh, you know, pusher pace in um, in a Viking film because you will not get that. Oh, it's similar in some ways to Pusher 3 and how Pusher 3 is kind of a slow pace. But Pusher 3 is also more narrative. This one isn't really narrative. No, it's it's this not. This is an abstract film very yes. much so. Yes, very much so. All right, so I'll kick it back over to you for Maker Breaks and MVTs. Make or Break is something that initially I thought would have broken the film for me, and it's the scenes on the boats when um, the Crusaders and One-Eye and the boy are on the boat. All they're blanketed by is fog. It's almost like when you're a child and on your bed you have sort of a, a stick or something keeping the blanket up over you with a, a flashlight, mm -hmm. yeah. and all around you is blanket. They're yeah. blanketed by the fog, and the scene's pretty lengthy. It's about 15 minutes long where they're just in the fog, and they're restless, and they're just lost, and they cannot fucking find anything. Yeah, they can't eat. They can't drink the water because it's salt water. So, so they, just, they can't do anything. They're just fucked. And at first I thought, oh, God, this is getting a little bit tedious. But in retrospect, much like you'd said the boat trip in Apocalypse Now, it really is the journey, and you utterly feel what they feel, the restlessness, the hopelessness. Yes, the desperation they, they're trying to work through in their heads. What does this mean? What is this character? What is he's bad luck? He's he, this, you know, all these things. Um, so I really like that stuff. Um, it's not my favorite for stuff in the film, but I think it, you know, it's a, it's uh, crystallizes uh, what I like about the film. Mm -hmm. MVT is Refn as much as I can go with the, the again, the landscape or uh, Mickelson. I'm going to go with Refn because it's his balls that, you know, that ha he had to make this film the way he wanted to make it. And then it turns out to be, an excellent film as a result. Uh, my score for the film was an 8.5 out of 10. I think it's an excellent film that I'm looking forward to revisiting and seeing what I can uh, pull from it at a later date. All right. Uh, my rating for this, my make or break is going to be the pacing and also the boat scene. The pacing of that boat scene, when we first saw it, it was getting a bit tedious. But as I've given myself time to think about it and stuff, I really, really like that boat scene. And uh, I'm in a total agreement with you on that. I mean, it really is that descent into hell. You know, the, even one of the characters at one point mentions that, that he's like the ferryman. He's taking them to hell mm -hmm. because they're losing their minds. They're just they're going they're going batshit crazy. They can't drink any water. They can't eat. There's no food. You know, they're losing their mind. They're going into dementia and whatnot. And uh, and uh, the whole time, one eye's just you know just looking at him. <laughs> yes, he's, he's totally solitary, but totally uh, quiet. You know, he doesn't say anything. He protects the child, which is an interesting touch there. And, uh, you know, you could tell something darker might be going on at some point there. But I like the uh, I like that scene. I really did. And when we first saw it, it's funny because it kind of took me out of the movie for a while. But as it's one of those scenes where in retrospect, you go back and you think about it. And you think hey, that the stuff on the boat was actually really good. You saw everything mm -hmm. there. You saw all the emotions of desperation, of uh, excitement about traveling to a new area of, uh, you know, near death. You saw you saw the whole range of emotion from all your characters right there. And the whole time, one eye is just watching, like a uh, like an ever vigilant kind of a uh, a guard over these these uh, Christians. So very very interesting touches, and I really like that scene a lot. Uh, my MVT, I'm going to go. We kind of went the opposite with the eight, but I'm going to go the opposite with this. I'm, I'm going to go with Mickelson mm -hmm. instead of the director. It's easy to go. I could go with Reffin very easily. I love Reffin. I think he's easily, like I said, one of the most talented directors working right now. But Mickelson, this film, for somebody who doesn't speak a fucking word and has got one eye covered the whole movie, uh, he manages to bring so much weight. To his character that it's just insane now there are scenes where he establishes the fact that he's a violent animal but that you didn't even need those scenes you could tell this dude's a bad motherfucker right from the get-go mm -hmm. you know they got him locked in a cage he only moves his eye that's right he moves very little you know he only moves when he has to move 
but when he moves, it's a burst of uh, violence and craziness that has to be seen to be believed. And and we've said it. This film, you won't go into it expecting an action movie, but trust me when I tell you, this film is bloody. I mean, this film is violent, and it's got oh, great sound design. Just amazing sound design with the bone crunching sword penetrations and the oh, <laughs> there's a scene with a rock. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> And there's another scene that uh, Refn, we joked around about, about Refn. You remember the guy against the rock? We won't talk about what it is because if people haven't seen uh, Pusher 3, they'll, they'll if they see Pusher 3, they know. Yeah. <laughs> but we joked about that he must have a fascination with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'll say. But, uh, yeah, that's it. And my score for the film is a solid 7 out of 10. At first, when we walked out of this film, I can be honest with you, I kind of thought it was maybe like a 5.5, maybe a, f- a 6. But as time's gone on, a lot like Bronson, which if we were to review Bronson again, I think I'd give it a higher score than I gave it initially. Mm-hmm. Because I think that his films grow on me. Uh, and uh, this one is definitely a grower. I know Miles, had, uh, he had just recently watched Bronson. He says he thinks it's a grower as well. I think that's a perfect way to speak of these movies. I think that they're deeper. They're a lot like Kubrick the first time you see Kubrick. The first time you see Kubrick, you might be underwhelmed. But the more and more you see Kubrick, the more and more you appreciate what he was doing. And I think oh, yeah. I think that's the way Refn's going to be. I think he's probably the closest I've come to seeing, uh, kind of the next phase of a of a Stanley Kubrick as director. You know what I'm saying? So he's probably the closest one working today. Anyway, all right. So that is uh, Valhalla Rising. Um, so I'm going to take my one eye and say adios. Adios. <laughs>